0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Tom Young to tell us all about his book titled "Unmaking the East India Company, British Art and Political Reform in Colonial India from the period of 1813 to 1858. The book was published by Yale University Press in 2023, and it's fascinating. And gorgeous, I will say. It's a very beautiful book, which makes sense, given that it focuses on artistic production and new modes of artistic production in colonial India during this key period to help us better understand what's happening with the East India Company as the British state is nationalizing it and taking more direct control, transforming really the relationship between nation and empire. Um, This is a story I was familiar with in terms of politics and economics, but honestly hadn't really thought about in terms of art. Um, And now I'm really quite convinced that there's a lot to say when it comes to understanding how art shaped the nationalization of the East India Company. So Tom, thank you so much for being here to tell us all about it.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Before we dive into your book and its fascinating findings, would you mind introducing yourself a bit to our audience and explaining why you decided to write this?
2: Sure. Um, so I'm an art historian um, specialised in the 19th century, um, just coming up to the end of completing a Hume uh, Early Career Grant at the University of Warwick. Um, at the heart of the book really are a, a range of uh, amateur sketches, uh, scrapbooks, uh, prints, periodical illustrations, all made in colonial India during the first half of the 19th century. And I first encountered these materials whilst I was researching my PhD, um, which was the PhD was really an attempt to correct this quite pervasive idea that there was a dramatic decline, uh, both in the quality and the quantity of art um, in the first half of the 19th century in India, or at least the art that was produced by British colonial officials um, working for the East India Company. And this seemed quite odd to me because there'd been a sort of a recent uh, turn to look at the connections between culture and imperialism, uh, to think about the, the political impact that art might be having on um, in colonial context, but also in, in terms of cultivating an imperial culture in Britain. Um, and so the sort of the core research project of the PhD was trying to work out why art might, uh, decline or atrophy in a period in which the East India company was really achieving paramountcy, um, in the subcontinent. So from 1818 onwards. Um, and so I set out to first sort of find a corpus of art that sort of disproved this idea that, um, there was a, this dramatic cultural decline, because actually there was just new types of art being produced. Uh, things like scrapbooks, things like um, periodical illustration, and then to look at the uh, political impact that they had. And uh, that's those scrapbooks, those sketchbooks that I, that I was studying. They've gone straight into this book as the sort of the core um, uh, research material, the, the the basis of the book.
1: So why have these objects, you know, for example, the scrapbooks, why have they been overlooked in the scholarship to this point?
2: So I describe these objects as the result of a new mode of artistic production, which is a term that I'm, I'm using to group um, the impact of inventions like lithographic printing, um, steam navigation, uh, the growing popularity of new types of, sort of middle-class print formats like the periodical, the scrapbook, the literary annual, um, but also the prevalence of amateur sketching um, among East senior company employees. And to some extent, I think the the results of this new artistic mode have been overlooked simply because they sort of they fall beyond the traditional disciplinary boundaries of art history. So we've had art historians uh, focusing on the aristocratic patronage of oil paintings and sculptures in 18th century India. So um, thinking about artists like Tilly Kettle or Johann Zoffany, whose whose works in Tate Britain, and um, so works like uh, Colonel Morden's and um, Colonel cockfight, you can see these these works, and there's been scholarship on them. And also the Victorian Raj's um, sort of state-funded art schools, art institutions, uh, big construction schemes like New Delhi, um, photographic surveys. These have all sort of come under um, come to academic attention. I think though that this has left a story that jumps from the late 18th century um, and then ends up in the Victorian Raj, um, which is the the state that set up in 1858 after the Indian Rebellion. Sort of catalyzes this demand to to nationalize the East India Company. Um, To a larger extent, though, um, I think that these materials have been neglected because they sort of, they fit awkwardly between these two better known and two quite distinct cultural and political moments. And so while scholars have shown how art was shaping this cosmopolitan corporate uh, reign of the indie company in the 18th century, and they've also looked at how art produced these spectacles to which the grandiose uh, vice-regal rule of the Victorian Raj was staged after 1858, there's been... Uh, very little attention in the period that's covered by by my book which is uh, where the East India Company was really a sort of rump institution it's, uh, it becomes more sort of a, a bureaucratic arm of the state um, colonial arm of the state um, and was heavily scrutinized and regulated by parliament so to put it another way I think there's a sort of it's a period that doesn't fit easily into narratives about the East India Company that we're, we're used to and I think art historians or the East the Art Historical Scholarship reflects that um the way in which the the art of the period doesn't fit into these narratives as well. Um, I, I think I should just say that the the point of the book isn't just to sort of plug the gap and show that there was art in this period, but it's uh, to show that actually I think this art forms quite an important and neglected imperial archive that I think opens new perspectives on this on this narrative and shows, um, or at least brings in it brings to light a sort of more complicated narrative about the transition from from company to raj over the first half of the nineteenth century.
1: Hmm. In fact, I'd love for you to tell us a bit more about that, because as you said, it's not just plugging a gap, it's making an argument, and I love that phrase, kind of a forgotten imperial archive. Um, So can you tell us a bit more about sort of why and how you're using art to explore the sort of bigger question of the development, the history of the British East India Company and this in-between reform regulation process?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I think it's a very different imperial archive to the ones sort of normally probed by um, imperial historians. So the sort of the minutes of uh, imperial minutes of meetings or official records, and, uh, you know, economic data, things like that. It's a it's a very different imperial archive. But I think the East India Company's re- regulation and nationalisation is sometimes framed as a sort of prescient prehistory um, of the struggle between the national state and. Uh, multinational or transnational corporations. Um, so sometimes you know you hear Amazon and Google and companies like this being um, being um, brought up. I think one of the core arguments of the book is to argue that actually this process wasn't just driven by you know the British state and high politics, so parliamentary regulation in, in Britain, um, but also by a crisis of legitimacy that was caused by the growth of public cultures and civil society actually in South Asia. Um, so I'm looking at you know utilitarian administrators. Um, Governor generals with, uh, who go over to India with liberal ideas about how um, uh, the, the company should be run or how it should be dealing with the South Asian population. Um, military men who have their own ideas and also Indian nobles in Bengal um, and an increase and a growing Indian middle class. All of these sorts of groups were using art to craft political identities and publicize their views about these Indian company and its future. Um, so the book is tracing a whole range of these uh, individuals as they... Some of them were socializing in amateur art societies, subscribing to uh, uh, periodicals that that sort of express their um, political loyalties, or using uh, lithographic printing to broadcast their their political agendas further afield. And by following the sort of the lives of these individuals who are producing art in this way, the book makes the claim, or at least I make the claim in the book, uh, that the social practices, that art offers access to these social practices and also to everyday experiences um, so I'm interested in there's an idea that's developed in the scholarship called the everyday state. Um, So the incident, the interpersonal encounters between um, Brit- British officials and colonised South Asians that actually had these uh, way in different ways were able to re- reproduce, uh, adapt, or resist the power structures of colonial rule. And I think art offers a really interesting way to get at these everyday encounters, um, these interpersonal encounters. So in terms of structure, the cha- each chapter. Um, addresses a different type of reform and links these political developments to different artistic practices or or new genres or new media. Um, so, for example, in the first chapter, um, I'm looking at the way amateurism as a social practice uh, brought together and regulated the behavior and the identities of the company's increasingly middle-class administration, this this bureaucracy that develops and sort of consolidates in after the 1820s. And then chapter four is looking at Uh, lithographic illustration um, in periodicals um, as a way to access sort of liberal ideas about how um, uh, Indian individuals should what sort of place Indian individuals should have in colonial society Um, so that's the way I'm using this art as an imperial archive.
1: Thank you for taking us through that. I think it raises a whole bunch of things that I'm definitely going to ask you about in more detail. Um, But given that we've talked about kind of the new modes um, of art, the new things being created in South Asia, kind of there's a bunch of new being thrown around in this time period. And I think we want to kind of understand a bit more about sort of what's enabling that um, before we get into kind of what people are doing with it and what the effects are. So what factors enabled the growth of these new artistic modes being produced, being consumed um, in South Asia, about South Asia during this time period.
2: Mm. So I think um, I'll focus on sort of print culture because that's uh, that's the sort of main factor um, or the sort of core aspect of the imperial mode I'm tracing. Really, um, I, I'm arguing that actually uh, the production of sort of uh, canvases on you know oil on canvas, sculpture. Um, these things did sort of did decline in the period, and what replaced it was a culture of print, um, particularly amateur sketches transformed into prints um, and illustrations in periodicals produced both in India and Britain, but very much circulating between, between the two. Um, the print historian Michael Twyman has described this period as witnessing an illustration revolution, and I've drawn quite a lot on this scholarship, but I also think there's a... Um, there's specific factors that shaped how this expansion of print capitalism in Western Europe um, shaped, or at least there's specific factors that shaped the relationship between this expansion of print capitalism in Western Europe and the consumption and uh, uh, production of illustration either created in or about uh, in colonial contexts like India. Um, So for concision, I think these can probably be uh, reduced down to three main points. Um, And the first is that uh, Lithographic, sprint, uh, lithographic printing spread right across the empire in the eighteen in the eighteen twenties, um, and lithography is a sort of a key theme in the book. It recurs almost in every chapter. Um, it's pretty much the first fundamentally new printing process since the fifteenth 15th, 15th century. Um, in that, unlike earlier types of printing, so engraving or or uh, you know etching or even aquatint. Um, on all of those sorts of prints, either you relieve a relief surface, which is actually what produces the print, or you engrave a hollow that holds the ink. Um, Lithography works on account of the fact that water and fat repel each other on a um, flat surface, normally a stone, which is where the lithos comes from in in the name. And it's originally invented in Bavaria at the right at the end of the 18th century. But by by the 1820s, at least, it spread through scientific and uh, commercial networks. Uh, right across Europe, across the Americas, um, across Asia, and to other colonial contexts like um, South Africa, Australia. Lithography is important because it's cheaper than uh, traditional forms of, say, copper plate engraving, and it also doesn't require these established traditions of artistic and technical expertise so you know you need the the, the scientific knowledge about um the chemicals and the, process, the chemical processes that are involved but these can be taught through uh printed manuals and you don't need this sort of body of artists or specialists in say copper plate engraving um who are pretty much you know based in in uh hubs of western europe at this period in this period also Another interesting thing about lithography, which I think we you know, it's important, is a big theme in the book. So I'll spend some time talking about it. Is that artists could draw directly onto the stone, or that their sketches could be chemically transferred onto onto plates um, as exact facsimiles. So they give this sort of greater authenticity to views of uh, colonial territories like India during a period in which there's this great, um, this big market for um, scenes that have supposedly have authenticity because they're drawn on the spot or they're drawn on you know on the ground at the place in which they're picturing so overall i think lithography number one it decenters uh print production across uh imperial spaces and also it reconfigures the dynamic between artists and publishers um in india and britain both of which are core themes that recur throughout the book um the second factor I think, which is shaping this this illustration revolution across the empire and, and specifically the relationship between Britain and India uh, in this revolution is that new printing houses are opening up in in London that's deliberately trying to cultivate new audiences, broader audiences for what would be considered traditionally elite or um, light forms of artistic consumption and amateur practice. So I think the best example here is Rudolf Ackermann, who, um, although he's not a focus of the book, he sort of comes in every so often because... Um, he has his big gaslit reference library and arts emporium on the Strand. And he leverages a sort of range of um, commercial East India Company contacts to, to pull together uh, things like diaries, official reports, um, amateur sketches, and also work by South Asian artists. So uh, miniatures by South Asian artists. And these all end up in um, quite affordable serialized publications that he, he releases for a much wider audience, including also a growing sort of female audience in in the metropole. And after the the Charter Act of eighteen thirteen, which is where the book begins, which is the the act that um, abolishes the company's monopoly on the private trade with India, these publishing houses start to find ways of working within these new commercial networks that set themselves up um, between India and Britain, finding ways to bring amateur amateur sketches back to the metropole. Um, and third, and finally. Um, Images of India and sort of amateur sketches uh, that are produced in India uh, start to be released as illustrations in quite a range of innovative genres, genres, and uh, print formats, which are also aimed at sort of diversifying or or widening audiences. So the book opens with this uh, description of uh, the Dharama of Hindustan, which is a sort of multi-sensory immersive spectacle that's opened up in in London by an author called Fanny Parks, who who had lived, previously lived in India and it's staged in um london's little bengal which was sort of a hotspot for uh former east india company employees returned back to london near baker street um and it's includes sort of it's a diorama that moves and it includes uh, lighting effects probably included sound um it's a trip up the ganges is the sort of the narrative thread but it's um you know one reviewer describes it as bringing knowledge about india and um, the quote is, even to the humbler classes. So I think this is a great example of um, these new forms of artistic production gaining or, or at least cultivating new sort of audiences for information and visual knowledge about India. Um, but this is this is true of a whole range of periodicals and literary annuals and and travel narratives that um, I explore and that are produced both in India and Britain and, and circulate between them. Um, so yeah, overall, these three factors, I think, contributed to images of India both being consumed in new ways, but also being consumed by new audiences over the early 19th century.
1: Hmm. Thank you for giving us that background. It's really helpful, I think, for understanding this period. And I'd love to pick up on something you've now mentioned a few times, right? This idea of focusing on amateur art. Why have you chosen this focus? And what do you think this form of art in particular tells us about the ways in which the East India Company was or was not changing during this period of, as you said earlier, sort of being a rump state.
2: Yeah, I think the the main reason I focus on amateurism is um, when I started looking at what materials were available to to write about. Um, it turns out that only about ten percent of the the materials that are now in the uh, former India Office collection, so the the big archive at the British Library, that's and um, that was together you know during uh colonial rule in fact um you know with the british library this art was open and functioning as an archive for um british rule in india uh during the colonial period um only about 10 percent of the materials in that or the visual materials in that archive are by professional artists um so the rest is produced by uh, amateurs including sort of officers who were trained to um trained to draw for uh, surveying or engineering uh, mapping projects um, and they're, they're taught this at the company's military semini- uh seminary in Surrey which is called Addiscombe. Um all by you know civil servants uh, who are given slightly less specialized training um, at Halebury, which is the, the company's training college in Hertfordshire. And I think a lot of the art history which you know I was sort of slightly sketching out earlier um, focusing on you know the canvases of uh, professional painters or big governmental, uh, buildings that are produced by professional architects in, in India. That sort of history misses the ways in which I think amateurism can provide these quite direct uh, insights into the lives of those groups or those individuals who are most intimately involved in the political reform and nationalization of East India Company. So, for example, I think in terms of you know, mapping and surveying, that's quite clear how those sorts of amateur practices have uh, you know, quite direct implications on colonial governance. But I also demonstrate. And I'm, I'm throughout the book. I'm, I'm more interested in some ways in how amateurism underpins social networks, or how it forms a practice for and um, creating or, or cultivating racial distinctions on which uh, colonial governance rested. So, for instance, um, just to take up amateur sketching, um, in the you know from the 1810s, 1820s, groups of amateurs were going out into the the countryside to sketch together, um, and in chapter one i look at these um, scrapbooks that were produced by the governor general at the time so that the, the, the um, top official in india francis rawdon hastings and and they show how sketching gifting collecting these sorts of amateur productions in scrapbooks actually ends up linking um key sort of company officials to quite well-known um political reformers so for instance um james buckingham who's actually deported from uh from india for his um Reform reform Opinions, he's a radical sort of uh, newspaper editor so I make this sort of a comparison between amateur sketching and golf in in uh, 20th century America in that uh, I think both sort of open up these um, spaces for showing off polite skills um, while also opening up channels for sort of political networking or social networking beyond the official uh, structure of the indie company. and um, in terms of a sort of a more theoretical approach to amateurism. I think the this idea of the modern professional artist that we have inherited, at least in Europe, developed very much within the urban commercial centres um, that emerged very much in connection to colonial world uh, as a product of the the um, these um, sort of commercial flows that were being produced by by the empire. And so I think use this. Disciplinary binary, which is you know makes sense in terms of 19th century British art history between professionals and amateurs, has some dangerous or could risk reinscribing a distinction onto you know, territories that had a very different cultural history precisely because they were at the, upper, the other end of this, uh, these extractive flows. So I think questioning this, this binary between professional and amateur is actually one way to think critically about the tools that we've inherited and whether they're appropriate or not for the context that we want to study.
1: Hmm. A number of very important reasons then to focus on amateurism and especially this idea of kind of what it reveals about the everyday um, and what a lot of these people, East India Company employees were up to. Um, you mentioned a few things there, and I think we're going to talk about them further. But one I'd really like to highlight is, um, well, opium, the opium trade, right? That's a pretty key aspect of what the East India Company is up to during this period. Um can you tell us about how this topic shows up in this art how you explore it in the book
2: Yeah so opium was it was sort of one of the, the challenges really of um writing about this this period and particularly trying to 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 link uh, art and politics so there's there is a very good literature already on the the connections between art and the plantation economies of the Atlantic so and there's books on sugar, and there's books on the representation of en- enslaved peoples and their labor. Um, there's also been quite good work on tea and the, the cultures of the tea table that develop in, in early modern Europe. But there's really, with sort of the exception, I think, of a scholar called Jeff Queely, there's there's not that much work really done on opium and, and visual representations of opium, despite the, the trade forming uh, what called Trocchi is called a keystone of empire. So um, one of the, you know, it's a really it's basically it's underwriting the company at this period it's it's preventing uh, bullion moving to china that it pays for the tea trade that is one of the the um you know one of the key trades of the british empire during this period yeah so over the period in which um the book covers uh, the farmers were being across the whole of sort of gangetic northern india were being uh, coerced into planting poppies planting um which were then transformed into opium and I think um, some readers might be familiar with um, Amitav Ghosh's uh, Ibis Trilogy, particularly um, this the first called the Sea of Poppies, where he uses this memorable phrase of um, sustenance farming being swamped by a rising tide of poppies. And the company owns two factories, one at Gulzabag, which is uh, in the suburb of Patna, and one at Gazipur near Benares, which is now um, Varanasi. And in chapter one, I'm focusing on an amateur artist called Sir Charles Doyle, who's actually the opium agent for the Patna Factory. So he's pretty much, uh, you know, he's in charge of the. He's pretty much the main man in charge of opium during the 1820s in, in colonial India. He's he's quite a remarkable figure. He's an extremely talented amateur artist, and he establishes a number of amateur art so- societies in India, including one which I focus on, which he establishes in 1824 whilst working as as opium agent. And it's called, uh, rather grandly, The Behar School of Athens. Um, he, he, if you read his work, he could be, um, sometimes he seems sort of quite uh, insufferably pompous, but actually he's also got a very keen sort of satirical eye and he produces poetry and um, visual satire, which uh, sort of um, pokes fun at this pomposity of, of uh, colonial officials. Um, anyway, this, this society produces quite a large range of um uh, visual materials so uh, sketches prints um, watercolors even some oil paintings um, and they also create this quite large uh, um, manuscript which they call the Proceedings of the Society which has sort of um, I mean, it's sketches pasted in um, recordings of the meetings they were having uh, verse poetry um, it's now in a private collection in the Chilterns but in all of this sort of um, amateur production, opium really only rarely occur. Um, sort of comes to the fore, as it mentioned explicitly. Um, there's a one-verse drama, really, where um, there's a sort of a play where Doily's household are drugged by this uh, Grim Reaper-style spectre who's got a um, a poppy wand. And it's a play really about how, um, because the vice president is called away to war, uh, it's the, the First Anglo-Burmese War, the dangers of colonial life and Doyle's job begin to sort of take their effect on the household, and dissipation begins to take take hold, um, which I think is quite telling in its own way. But um, that's that's pretty much it. So to get around this absence, really in the in the earth of the, the society, I use this metaphor of the, the ghostly figure to think about opium as a sort of sinister absence or a spectral presence. Um, so to start, I think that Doyle was very much using amateur practice as a way to perform um, a aristocratic European identity in a way that I think mitigated his uh, anxieties, really, about his bourgeois career. You know, very clearly bourgeois career as a factory manager, so in charge of the, the opium factory. Um, he's quite a perfect example of um now quite famous phrase of Benedict Anderson, that colonial culture is uh, capitalism in a feudal aristocratic drag. I think sort of captures, captures what's happening with Doidy in the society very, very well. Um, he also produces quite a lot of lithographic prints depicting landscapes and rural scenes around Bapna uh, in Bihar that he contributes to scrapbooks that the society publish. And I think just like the social activities of the society, these are both uh, reflecting and obscuring Doidy's career in opium. Um, so most of them only really show sort of quite anodyne, uh, village scenes that are in a style that uh, is linked to romantic ideas about British landscape painting and naturalism and these sorts of things, but they're almost certainly created because Doyle was travelling around Bihar, um, conducting inspections and meeting opium agents uh, or opium contractors rather. Um, so again, there's this sort of sinister presence uh, behind the work itself. Um, at the very end of the book, as well in the conclusion, I return to these this sort of this contrast between art as reflecting. Um, polite ideas about improvement and then opium being a sort of keystone of the company's um the company's economy because i look at the work of an artist called shibala who's commissioned to paint uh, murals of opium processes actually in the part of the factory where doily worked um and although lao's patron uh uh robert lyle is actually killed in 1857 in the indian rebellion so these this commission's never completed he produces these uh small mica paintings of the opium process, um, which, is, which I look at and I think end up showing that this, this contradictory character of these India company is both sovereign and an apparatus for commercial exploitation um, last into the 1850s. Um, so yeah, opium runs through the book, but I think very much more as a sort of sinister uh, sinister context than something artists were consciously or deliberately picturing and commenting.
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com.
1: which is fascinating. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I'd love to pick up on something you also discuss in the book um, around lithographic scrapbooking, which you've mentioned a little bit so far, and especially the idea that this practice um, is having some political impact and some social impact, and especially around kind of changing or maybe even destabilizing ideas about with the british east india company and what it is as a corporation what it is as an identity what it is as a community can you tell us a bit about this
2: yeah absolutely so um one of the main outputs really of this of the bay school of athens the society that Doyle founds in fans found, um, establishes in Patna in 1824 is a series of uh scrapbooks containing lithographic prints that are produced on a a press that he um takes great troubles to bring to Patna by about 1828 and um, so actually I mean it's fascinating that he he gets this lithographic press and is producing um, materials that are very similar to those being produced all around the world at this time so actually linking Patna um, you know as a becoming a sort of a hub of lithographic production in some ways um, very early on but um, uh, to, to talk about the, the politics of it um, these, these scrapbooks they're produced they have uh, they're have lithographic prints pasted into them. Um, they contain sort of all number of, they're each unique. So some contain um, different configurations, uh, prints that were produced from different years, different numbers. Um, and they're all now sort of scattered around the world as well. So they're in uh, public institutions from uh, the British Library to uh, the Kolkata Victoria Memorial uh, and private collections in between. Um, members of the society. I think we're using these scrapbooks as sort of gifts to, to social network, create friendships. But there's also this side to them that the society quite often wrote very explicitly about their, their ambitions to promote art in India or to cultivate art. Um, and so I think the scrapbooks work as a sort of a way of showing off the talent that's being produced um, in Patna and sort of create these, like, they broadcast these identities that I think they're adopting, but also with intentions to um cultivate further afield amateur practice. Um, and so these sort of more lofty or um even, though, you know, even if this is a form of identity projection, these sort of these are this like, loftier ideas, I think, are very interested in respect to the fact that the scrapbooks are printed, um, almost certainly printed, um, manually, but also contain the work of two uh, local partner-based artists called Ramdas and Sheepdale, who actually contributes lithographs to these scrapbooks that are signed in um, the Persian at Nastali script. So they have autographs in uh, of Jairam to leave their own autographs next to the work, just like the the British members of the Behar School of Athens. It's not totally uh, unusual to have um, Indian artists working on print projects in this period. So um, for instance, with the Daniels, who produced potentially one of the most uh, famous or one of the more popular um, series of uh, views of India, and, and Indian antiquities, they're working in collaboration with an artist called uh, Gangaram Tambat. But what I think is interesting, and this is where I, what, what I look at in the book, is that Jaram Das and Shivdel seem to be drawn in quite complicated ways into the society's ambitions to uh, promote the quality of art in India. And that I think this is happening during a time in which there's you know, ideas about colonial education, um, the so-called Anglicization of South Asian individuals, so liberal ideas about English education, English language education, these are all dominating discussions about colonial politics in this period. So in the book, I, I think I talk about the lithographic press as opening up um, a different type of contact zone that's reflecting these broader political themes, but is also operating according to um, a range of more specific ideas about artistic styles and ideas about invention and creativity, um, talent, and I'm also looking at the way, rather than sort of focusing on the ideological level, that the scrapbook works to open up everyday encounters between uh, these British officials and these local partner-based artists in, in ways that we can think about as the everyday state that's policed by officials like Doiley.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. I think that's a really interesting kind of combination of different things going on and really makes that case that looking at this art helps us understand the bigger questions of kind of what is the East India Company at this point and what sorts of interactions is it having with different actors? Um, And similarly, you look at in the book how lithography is influencing um, the thinking of these colonial officials. Uh, we've talked a bit about opium. We've talked a bit about kind of art and um, talent and things like that. I'm wondering if we can also talk about kind of racial and colonial systems of extractive capitalism, which are obviously a huge part of, for example, opium. How did lithography influence colonial officials' thinking in this area?
2: Mm. So I, I'll answer this, I think, using some examples from the book, which um, there's one chapter that looks at representations of the Indian economy and and also knowledge about uh, South Asian labour practices and, and the division of labour in South Asia. Um, works about art with the, this sort of um, information and this sort of content weren't necessarily new, so they're produced actually from you know 1600 onwards when the East India Company starts to come into contact with the subcontinent. Um, what I think lithography does is it both decentralizes and alters who can produce this kind of information. And it also makes works for this kind of content um accessible to different audiences. So in the 18th century, um the UI surveys being conducted by British officials and they have the help of um South Asian artists who are producing uh you know compilations of sketches or watercolors and different styles, often in indigenous artistic traditions. And you might be able you might Characterize this sort of knowledge production as a form of translation, um, very much happening um, in across you know very very different sort of um, power um, in in a relationship with different powers, but it's still a form of sort of uh, intercultural translation. Um, I think what happens with lithography um, is that you get officials in provincial India, um, you know, like Doily who are actually able to produce amateur works that represent different types of Indian laborers. And also you get new commercial publishers setting up presses that are producing information about the economy. Um, so in the book, I look at the Ganses who um, established commercial commercial lithographic press in Madras. And also the work of Charles Doyle again, who publishes a book on Indian social types whilst he's working as the opium agent in Buckner. Um, and I think what I'm interested in in these albums is how they adopt a range of genres and styles that are extremely popular in um, cities like London and Paris, which where there's increasing economic specialization, you know, these are the centers of globalizing economy. And yet they're being used by these officials on the ground in India to depict an economy that's very much um de-industrializing, contracting, uh, becoming less socially diverse precisely because of uh, colonialism, because of it, the extractive nature of the, the colonial economy. Um, so I trace these ambivalences in both the Gantz's and Doyle's uh, work um to show how both of these artists are responding to this this situation and trying to broadcast their aspirations for reform or their solutions to um to the these issues. So um, I think the Ganses end up sort of abandoning an interest, a former interest in um Product of uh, Indian labor. So, you know, artists who were working earlier in the 18th century are very much interested in what the company can sell, what materials it can it can uh, ship. Uh, I think the Ganses end up actually looking more at um, the population because there's a shift in which the company is increasingly actually just controlling bodies. It's attempt it's attempting to uh, gather uh, military recruits. It's it- running a large system of indentured labor and so this this commercial ideology of the company is starting to decline um, in terms of doily i think he ends up using a sort of a range of genre imagery that becomes very popular in all sorts of contexts since early 19th century period um to sort of cast himself as this uh, paternal uh, paternal aristocrat um who has intimate knowledge of the countryside so there's a sort of it's a liberal small c conservative ideology that it's a weird ideology that he adapts um And I think he ends up producing this imagery that sort of foreshadows this idea of the village community um, and the traditions of the village community that becomes uh, a very important um, idea in the 19th century feeding right through into uh, Mahatma Gandhi and and, uh, his political philosophy. So in both examples, I think lithography is shaping how artists in the ground are responding to these um, uh, economic and, and detrimental effects of the colonial rule. And also broadcasting their beliefs about the way British rule um, should be impacting South Asia or the the futures of the, the company.
1: And I mean, you've spoken to it a little bit already, but I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about kind of um, obviously the shaping of it at that time, but also the sort of changes further on, because you talk about in the book that this Lithographic printing, and especially the periodicals, which I think maybe we will to talk a little bit more about here, um, quote, fundamentally alter how colonial knowledge was conceived, communicated, and instrumentalized, right? And as you've just suggested, there there's something starting here that really has much longer consequences than these particular people who start it.
2: Mm. Yeah. So I think um, it's probably important also to say that lithography in India is entangled with the emergence of an increasingly middle-class administration. And th- these are the people who you know, appear in chapter one um, as these uh, uh, officials who are trying to project this anglicized polite identity. Um, and it's also connected to the rise of steamships, um, which create this greater interconnectivity between uh, metropolitan and colonial cultures. So at one point, uh, European prints had been these sorts of fetishistic, nostalgic objects uh, for colonial officials in India. Um, so Natasha Eaton has written, written very um, well about the way in which the, uh, these prints are being sort of uh, sold in emporiums and people are looking for these old, you know, grand scenes of Italy and um, sort of Claude Lorraine-style scenes of Italy and um, they're being sold in quite ruthless probate auctions. Um, I think this this all begins to change because from the 1830s, a range of periodicals start to emerge that cater to a new middle-class public which conceive of empire as being connected by this more rapid communication of current affairs and gossip and fashions, and all being consumed. you know, not by finding these prints in emporiums or, or collecting them at the grass. You know, paying lots of money for them at auctions, but within regular publishing rhythms. So within the the news cycles and um, you know, fashion is is needs these sort of these um, regular cycles. Um, I think these images. Are in, uh, begin to communicate knowledge about the subcontinental economy or its various laboring types um, in, in a subtly different way to earlier um, print projects. So whereas you had um, images that sort of were premised on the idea that the European eye could uh, classify and distinguish the colonial other, um, more sort of connoisseurial ideas, I think these works in periodicals, they start to structure a... Divide or social divide that's much more reliant on this idea of the reading public. Um, so, who could be, like, who could engage and therefore be recognized as belonging to this literary sphere that periodicals, periodical publications are producing in early nineteenth-century India. So, um, yeah, in the third chapter of my book, I explore this shift in what you might call the institutional contexts of colonial knowledge by examining two uh, series of portraits that the artist Murphy Grant produces. Um, And he releases these in various illustrated periodicals in the 1830s and 40s. Um, One of the series is called The Lithographic Sketches of the Public Characters of Calcutta. And the other one is called A Series of Miscellaneous Rough Sketches of Oriental Heads. Um, So, I mean, immediately in terms of the the titles, you can see this divide that um, is being structured here. Um, But the former really is picturing white society in Bengal according to these sort of masculine ideal of the public individual. So the sort of ego ideal that this society is projecting. So you've got men with uh, hunting trophies or uh, scientists in the lab with these quite um, over-the-top lunges with test tubes and things like this. Um, And the latter series, I think, is engaging with ideas about the colonial literary sphere um, and the nature of civic participation uh, in order to distinguish so-called Anglicized uh, individuals. So individuals who, I think, who had been, you know, were able to speak in English or engage with the English language public sphere, um, from a sort of taxonomic ordering of South Asian society that was far far closer to earlier forms of print publication or earlier representations of the South Asian economy. Um, I sort I contextualized these this distinction in terms of uh, the liberal social reforms that are reshaping East India Company's rule, um, sort of from the 1820s, but specifically after 1833. And, and the, the chart Tract then, um, because I think lithographic periodical illustration produces this body of knowledge that determines which individuals um, or groups were deemed enfranchised and which were deemed, um, you know, frankly disposable by colonial rule. Which which could be who were deemed to be enfranchised and who were deemed to be, um, uh, you know, the population that needed to be managed for commercial gain. Um, so in combination, I think, with changes in the reading public and, and the effects of steam navigation, um, I think lithography becomes this key for shaping how um, knowledge about India is communicated and how it impacts Indians themselves in terms of which what racial boundaries are being established in the colonial society that's that's forming in, in the 1830s and forties.
1: Very good. Um very clear then how much of an impact lithography has. So thank you for taking us through that. Um We have talked a decent amount about lithography, but that's not the only type of art that's talked about in the book. And so I'd love to ask you about portraits um, and specifically what role portraits and sort of related types of art, um, both kind of themselves, and especially as well their circulation throughout empire, not just their existence, but how they moved around, played into this idea of kind of shaping imaginaries, perceptions, and in fact, policies um, in South Asia and especially British attempts to expand their holdings in South Asia?
2: Mm. So I think that this idea of expansion and the, the frontier, that becomes uh, one of the key arguments of the book um, because from the 1830s, the frontier is becoming this, um, particularly the northwest frontier, so uh, the region that's now, um, uh, you know, Punjab, uh, Pakistan, um, Afghanistan this region develops into this sort of place of colonial adventuring. So um, a site where colonial officials could both escape what was perceived to be the sort of um, dangerous climate and bureaucracy of Bengal and live out these uh, medieval fantasies of being a modern knight in the, in the mountains in Punjab and Afghanistan. Um, and in some ways, I think this is because violence on the frontier was endemic. So lots of history books tend to just skip from... Um, the same company gaining paramountcy um and then in sort of you know 1818 and then to the rebellion of 1857 and in doing so they missed how from the first invasion of, uh, of Afghanistan in 1839 the british become involved in a whole range of conflicts on the northwest frontier so Sindh Gwalior twice in the Punjab in the 1840s and illustrations depicting these conflicts were hugely popular um then printed in both India and the UK um, in a range of new middle class genres, um, I was discussing earlier. Um, yeah, in the book, I'm interested in the way this sort of material shaped a cultural geography that portrayed the frontiers, what I call an atavistic realm. Um, so it's capable of only being governed by an individual, and particularly through an individual's military might and their masculine will. So it's a gendered space. Um, and rather than uh, the sort of utilitarian bureaucratic systems of government in established in Bengal that get gendered in their own terms um, and racialized it as well in those terms. So there's been a very good scholarship on uh, on uh, ideas about the emasculated or the effeminate uh, Beng- Bengali. I think these ideas play into um, British ideas about the self and the frontier as as a space. So um, you get British officials. Um, actually literally adopting uh, clothing and weaponry on the frontier um, from uh, tribes in uh, Afghanistan and then also being portrayed in portraits in wearing these costumes wear- with these weapons, also um, copying the famous general Sir Charles Napier who's notorious for overstepping his authority and annexing Sindh by growing these long beards that are associated with new ideas about manliness and Victorian neo-medievalism um i also explore the role of sikh art and portraiture in anglo-sikh diplomacy in shaping this idea of the frontier um so i follow a series of portrait exchanges between the british and the court of Maharaja ranjit singh um who was the ruler of the sikh empire in the punjab but this empire it expands you know from the punjab into um you know downtown Bhutan into kashmir um into uh eastern afghanistan um Yeah, and I I say that these uh, portrait exchanges end up adapting what I think is a quite explicit Mughal framework. So it's based on ideas about um, illumination philosophy and divine light and and the way in which vision is perceived to establish a sort of bodily political connection between the giver and the receiver of the gift. Um, What's interesting is that these gift exchanges actually bring an image of Queen Victoria into diplomacy. which is despite the fact that the company had been um, attempting to, one, regulate these practices of gift giving, but also deliberately uh, eliminating the monarch from, from company politics. So, you know, um, making it easier to say that there's, there's one authority, British authority in India, and that's the, the governor general. But uh, just before the, the invasion of Afghanistan, um, the amateur artist Emily Eden, who's the sister of the governor general, she creates this jewel-studded portrait medal. Um, of Queen Victoria for Ranjit Singh um, in a way that's both deliberately adapting uh, Mughal styles of diplomacy, but also earlier um, British styles of diplomacy conducted uh, during the period in which um, the East India Company was being run by Warren Hastings, uh, which, had pre- which had become to be seen as, um, you know, not sufficiently regulated and tied to ideas about corruption but it's clear that these ideas start to matter less on the frontier or that the political situation on the frontier starts to starts to create new exigencies. Um, so while I think there's, some of the scholarship has started to trace this idea of Queen Victoria um, emerging as this imperial empress after 1858 and this ide- ideology of the, the Victorian Raj being very much centred on Victoria and her representation. I think it's very interesting to trace how this, this these ideas start to emerge earlier in in the 1830s on the frontier um through portraits of the queen um the chapter also looks at how victoria herself was personally engaged with this sort of this range of imagery depicting the frontier um and particularly this uh, one painting by richard armitage or rather a, fr- a design for a fresco that richard Armitage uh, produces in for a competition to um, decorate the new houses of Parnell once the the first one had burnt down in eighteen in eighteen thirty four um, and Armitage depicts um, the Battle of Miani which is one of the the com- battles in a campaign to Alex Sindh which is um, had been deeply criticised in the public sphere so it's a very contentious topic and the image itself is panned by critics but Queen Victoria says so she absolutely adores it and it, and it, she personally purchases the painting so I think there's this interesting way in which um Art is giving you access to this uh, shift in the company ideology before it's sort of officially recognized. So um, it shows how this orientalization or reorientalization of a medievalization of British rule that's normally considered to come after 1858 and be established with the the grandiose vice-regal rule of the the Raj. This is happening earlier on the frontier in the 1830s with according to some gendered ideas about, uh, gendered and racialized ideas about frontier frontier rule compared to the bureaucratic system in Bengal
1: and that takes us back to your original point um that this book is looking at a, a really important imperial archive and helping us fill in that gap that's often skipped over and exploring the role of art in explaining these changes so that seems like a great place to sort of come to a conclusion with our interview leaving only my final question um which is that this book is available for people to read which means it's off your plate so is there anything that you might be working on now or next whether or not it's a book whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like our listeners to be aware of
2: yeah so i mean after after a short holiday um this summer i'm I'm currently working on um a couple of things actually one of them is a uh global history of lithography i mean we've talked about lithography a lot today um and that's sort of, but the the way in which I was thinking about writing a global history emerges both from this interest I have in the way it was reshaping colonial culture, but also um, I lived in, in Poland for two years and actually seeing that this was lithography was working as a sort of underground medium um, in East Central Europe as well, inspired me to start thinking about lithography far more as, as a global technology that ends up linking dis- disparate places together but having quite similar uh, cultural effects. So that's the, that's the next book project. Um, but I'm also, so I'm pitching a sort of a book on the cultural, cultural history of free ports as well, which is, a, you know, a theme linked in some ways to, um, these, these global, the way in which, uh, ports and port cities work as sort of nodes in, in shaping global cultural histories. Um, so yeah, that's what, that's what I'm working on now.
1: Yeah. Intriguing. Well, best of luck with those projects. And while you're working on them, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Unmaking the East India Company, British Art and Political Reform in Colonial India, 1813 to 1858, published by Yale University Press. Tom, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us on the podcast.
2: Thank you. It's really fun.